makes me feel like I'm a part of something bigger. My favorite business show. Hands down, the best B2B sales and marketing podcast. The ultimate resource for salespeople. George makes me want to conquer local. An authentic entertainer. Conquer Local with Vendasta. Here's George Leaf. Welcome to the Conquer Local podcast. You are absolutely going to love this episode. Phil Jones, the CEO and founder at Phil Jones International. We're going to get him on the show today. Phil is a sales training juggernaut. He has trained organizations all over this planet. He has authored a number of different books, which we'll get him to tell us about on the episode. And you're going to really dial in to one of the best communicators that I've met in a long, long time. Phil M. Jones, the CEO and founder of Phil Jones International, coming up next on the Conquer Local podcast. Phil Jones joining us. And Phil, I'd love to get your bio. We kind of covered it a bit in the intro, but I'd love to hear it from you because it's such a great story as to how you end up today as an international sales trainer and sales leader. So if you could give us the bio in you know, a too long, didn't read format, that'd be great. <laughs> I'll try and do this as promptly as possible. But yeah, firstly, thanks for having me here, George. It's a delight to be on the show. Um, I've been an entrepreneur as far back as I can remember. So I started in business when I was 14 years of age, started knocking on the doors of my neighbors, asking them quite politely whether they wanted their cars washed. And some said yes, some said no. Most just asked me how much money I would charge. And I did okay with that little car cleaning business, so much so that by the age of 15, I wasn't going to school anywhere near as often as I should. And I remember being invited in by my school teachers, questioning my attendance, saying, Phil, why don't you come to class? To which I'd respond with a question. And the question I would respond with is, is, is how much money are you making, sir? And my school teachers always refused to tell me, but at the time, my, my little car cleaning business was delivering me, well, circa 5,000 US dollars a month. It was around 3,000 pounds a month at the time. So the reason I wasn't going to class is I had you know, customers that needed servicing, staff that needed direction, things needed to be done. And I built uh, my studies around my businesses, built businesses all through my teens. And then at the age of 18, instead of the dilemma of, which college do I go to, is, is I turned down an offer for one of the most prestigious universities here in the UK and took a role to become one of the youngest ever sales managers for one of the largest department store groups in the UK. Um, running teams of a couple of hundred people, turnovers in excess of 10, 12, 15 million pounds a year. And, and a beautiful thing being in a senior leadership position in your teens is like you don't know what you don't know. And it was, it was very much a baptism of fire. How, I held a number. Can I, can I jump in for one second? How do you land that job? And congratulations on being an entrepreneur. And I, you know, maybe another time you and I could talk about what the teacher said back, but I'd love to know, how do you get this job at 18? Well, firstly, nobody told me I couldn't apply for it. Right. So I, there's a big lesson in that is that nobody said you had to be old enough to do something. You just need to be good enough to do something. And we see that through the world of sports and we see that how the playing field's built level through technology is, is you don't have to be old enough. You just need to be good enough. And I was brave enough to try. And what I ended up doing actually is I, I applied for the management training program that was a grad program. 
I got through the grad program, even though I wasn't a grad. So I got kind of given a wildcard place. I got bought in as a trainee to an environment. And then within two weeks of me arriving, the line manager that I was supposed to be being mentored down from went long-term sick. And then I got holding the baby in that role. That, that was the, the mechanics of how it happened. So a, a bit of baptism by fire, but then yep. you had to perform. You don't you don't Correct. keep that job with imposter syndrome. So, what what was that like? Because I I get the feeling, and you and I have just met, but you know you're kind of in the deep end of the pool and treading water a bit, probably. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you're also consciously incompetent. Like if we're going to use some Covey stuff. Is you're like, hey, I'm in over my head here. And the beautiful thing is, is when you're naively incompetent and then you're open and vulnerable about it people are willing to help hmm. and i learned that success leaves clues at a very early age of my life and i learned that if you're brave enough to be able to ask it from people who've walked a path ahead of you and then humble enough to accept it you can accelerate your growth trajectory at, at no end so i just became a sponge in every single area and, and i learned to never be in awe of anybody else's brilliance i'd never say wow i'd simply ask how and then dig in and say, well, yeah, but really how? And then learn what works. The other beautiful gift I was given is that as a very young business leader, you learn that you cannot expect respect. You know, a job title does not give you any respect. You earn respect by the things that you do. And I learned that very quickly that, that I was being, the expectation of me as a young leader was he won't be around long. Why do I have to listen to this little kid? Like, I knew it was uphill. And that meant I had to do things right. I had to win the trust of other people the right way. I did a lot through influencing other people using third-party stories. So it was never what I think you should do is it was, hey, I was speaking to Sally and what Sally Shed said that she does in order to be more successful in this area was blank. And I was observing Steve the other day, and I tell you what, he's fantastic at doing X, Y, and Z. And I noticed he does this one thing different that, that, that seems to be that nobody else does. I wonder what you could learn to be more like Steve, right? And, and it became this facilitator of information as opposed to an oracle of knowledge. And, and I think that served me very well. Well, it's an amazing story to think that you know you start as a young teenager, you become a proficient business person where the majority of people who start businesses in their teens don't make it to uh, make more money than their teachers. Right. Um, then you get this job at the fashion re retailer running a, a massive sales organization um, and, and it's learning on, on the job. And then when I, when I Google your name, <laughs> and I start to see this brand that you've built over the years. We've got eight best-selling books. We've got two original programs for Audible, over 2,500 presentations in 57 countries. Um, and you create this thing orange and gray. Let's talk about that corpus of work now because it's a, it's a resume that anyone leading sales organizations would kill to have. Yeah, um, it's been quite a journey. So I went through fashion retail. I then went from there to work with one of the largest furniture retail businesses in the UK, helping turn around broken retail stores. I went from there to become a commercial director with two Premier League soccer clubs. Went from there to build a property business with a business partner of mine that turned over, turned over 240 million pounds at its peak. And then in 2008, when the recession kicked in, we had no option but to bring that business down. And it was like, hey, what do I do next? What do I do next? And it was small independent businesses that knew a little of my track record that were interested in how my advice could help them trade out of recession. 
And then networking organizations like BNI and Chamber of Commerce and other small independent networking groups were saying, hey, Phil, will you, will you deliver a presentation to our members about things that they can do to grow their business from now? And I thought, sure, that sounds fun while I'm figuring out what I want to do next. So I started to, to deliver presentations in these environments gratis without you know, business plan or, or, or future plans of what I was looking to do. And I realized I liked it. And I was only in my kind of late 20s at the time and thought the idea of being a speaker, trainer, author, expert was something I'd do when I'm old and gray. But it seemed the customer base were pretty happy with what I was doing. So I started this business in 2008 from very humble beginnings. Then it became a, a sales training company where I'd sell tickets to workshops. And then it became a coaching business. Then it became a consulting business. And today, like you said, it's, um, it's a fairly significant size organization through my thought leadership. And then what, what it's also allowed me to do is to bump into other verticals. Uh, and Orange and Gray, you mentioned, is one of the companies that I own now um, with two other business partners that I met through some deep work I did consulting into the hearing care profession. So we now have an agency that supports almost 100 of the, the top hearing care uh, practices across the United States with a, a done-with-you sales and marketing strategy to support their, their business growth. So I've had the ability to, to bring some other people with me on the journey, to create some other organizations. I still do my Phil Jones thought leadership book stuff, consulting, speaking, et cetera, and have, well, what now is, is five other independent businesses that run outside of my thought leadership that have all in some way plugged into, into the work that I do. Um, and, and, and what's nice is some of the people that started with me when we were humble, you know, 2008, that were you know, my accounts guy and my, my assistant, et cetera, are now in senior leadership positions in those other companies, which is a lot of fun. Well, I, I want to talk about the exactly uh, title on the books first. Great, great title. Um, I was on a call this morning um, earlier in the day with a customer and they said, I'd like to know exactly what to say to a customer. And here you are with exactly what to say. So can we introduce these books to the folks listening today that may not be familiar with your, your branding here and, and uh, you know, what you were trying to accomplish when you put these books together? Oh, I, I, I wish there was a very strategic, scientific, well-thought-out, decade-long plan for this body of work. But I'll tell you what really happened is I launched a book in 2010, 2011 called Magic Words. And this book actually appeared through opportunity and accident. Is I was at a mastermind group with some other author, consultant, friends of mine, and we were talking about publishing books. And this was 2009. And I let my big mouth get me into trouble and say, look, it's easy. You don't need a, a big New York publisher to back you. You can back yourself now. This thing's called self-publishing. I bet you could turn a book around in like seven, 10 days. Um, and they made me put my money where my mouth was. And 10 days later, I spawned a book called Magic Words that came from a training manual from a body of work that I'd done with a client just a few days previous. And I turned this book around quickly. I put it out into the world and it, it did really well from a download point of view. It was, it, it was ebook first. It was done for fun. We did 240,000 copies of it in quite a short period of time, but it was never done properly. It was done for the purpose of appeasing my mastermind co-workers. And I used it as like a giveaway on the website for lead capture. I used it um, as a promo piece for events and as a giveaway. 
And then when my geographic move to the US from the UK happened 2017, I thought I need to launch something new. And then when I got my head out of my backside, I said, well, instead of launching something new, why don't I relaunch something old that I know works and do it right? So exactly what to say is in fact the rewrite of magic words. And here's how it became called exactly what to say. I was gonna call it magic words again. And then when I looked to call it Magic Words, I found there was another book that was already published in the US called Magic Words by a guy called Tim David. And I thought rather than go head to head with a guy that's a real magician, um, I'll just retitle the book. And I'd done a number of training programs and, and speeches in theaters where we've had fun in like an infotainment fashion. Um, and I called the program exactly what to say and the title resonated. I produced an audio program for network marketers and I called it exactly what to say and the title resonated. So I took these two tested ideas, plugged them together and said, there's a title for the book. Now here's what happened. Published the book and the book went gangbuster. Got reviews from all kinds of different angles really quickly, crushed a number of lists in its first number of weeks. And I got a phone call from a major New York publisher that said they want exactly what to say from me after publishing. I'm like, this is my baby. Like, this is mine. I own the IP inside out. Like, like I can send every member of my family for, to college on the success of the back of this book, right? Um, I didn't want to give my body of work away to anybody else. I wanted to own it in its entirety. But I said, I'll tell you what I will do. I'll do two more books. And they said, great, we'll jump at that deal. And the deal was that those books had to come out quickly. Which, you're, thought, good, well, which you're good at, by the way. Yeah. I already proved that. <laughs> and then it was like, okay, now if I'm going to bring three books to market quickly, well, I can't have like three conflicting books with different levels of thought leadership that are dragging in different directions. What happens if I retell this story where they can be a trifecta of books read in any order with any tip of the arrow being the entry point and the other two backing it up? And that's what we did with exactly how to sell and exactly where to start that came behind that. And now I'm stuck owning the word exactly, hoping that every time somebody says the word, I get like a sense in the dollar as a, as a tax on it. And it's become part of my brand, but it, it's been more organic than strategic, George. Does that make sense? No, it definitely does. And where I wanted to get to was this idea of exactly how to sell or exactly mm -hmm. what to say is you know where the concept when I was reading through it at a, at a high level on the content it was it was giving people a place to start with some structure and yep. and it, you you know obviously there's a big need for that when you're when you're working and th and then I wanted to tie it into some of the keynotes that I was watching um, and learning about about your approach but it really is a very tactical you try to give the audience a tactical thing where they can go use it and and find some success quickly is that or am i not reading it correctly you're right on the money and i call it freedom within fences right it's very tightly constrained fences that people can bring their own personality their own freedom towards where they can be themselves and what's interesting about exactly what to say as a body of work is it's a tiny little book you can read it cover to cover in an hour if you're not smart enough, you can lose the simplicity and just how powerful it is and think that it it's merely just a tiny little book. What it actually is, is 23 deep-rooted psychological principles illustrated through the form of one tiny micro example that if you can understand that and apply that principle a thousand times over, you can choose any set of words you like. 
This is just one example of exactly what to say that delivers that principle. The and one- I think that preciseness gives people confidence to try things that wouldn't have otherwise formed things they would become confident in being able to do. It allows them to confidently step outside of their comfort zone because this framework. And and then build upon that. So Correct. enough to be dangerous, enough to have a level of confidence, and then start making it your own. I, I saw a Correct. theme in, in most of your content around that. Yeah. And it, it's... People have often said to me from a sales point of view is how do people get more confident in selling? And the only answer I have to that is that they need to become more experienced, right? Is confidence cannot exist without experience, otherwise it's arrogant. So what the body of my work is, is often focused on is saying, just take this step, just nudge yourself into that. And it, and it just gets them on their way. Then they gain experience, then they gain momentum. And then before they know it, they know what they're doing. I completely agree with that approach, and that's why I wanted to hear it directly from you because I saw it in a number of uh, presentations that you've given. The next thing that I wanted to touch on, and I know this is one of your passions, but I'd love for you to expand on it. Why why shouldn't we try to sell like Wolf of Wall Street or the, you know, the used car salesperson? Or if I could quote a very famous radio, because I'm a radio guy, a very famous radio TV show, Herb Tarlick from WKRP. Uh, I think of that when I think of, you know, what I think you're going towards, but why so passionate about that? Uh, I'd love for you to share it with our listeners. I've spent my professional life helping people to sell more effectively. And we live in a world where nobody wants to be a salesperson. If I asked a room full of people to throw some adjectives at me of what would describe a stereotypical salesperson, I receive an ugly list every time. Pushy, obnoxious, self-centered, a liar, like, like this set of ugly adjectives. And if anybody ever used those words to describe you, you'd be mortified. I then asked the same audience is, well, if you can give me some adjectives to describe not a stereotypical salesperson, but a professional salesperson, what words would you reach for now? And they give me a completely different set of words. Now you're consultative, you're honest, you're caring, you're you know, knowledgeable, you're empathetic, a completely different set of words. And what my work is focused on is saying, how do we bring more integrity to the profession of salesmanship, knowing that we're all selling something? Sometimes it's a product or service. Sometimes it's an idea or an outcome. It's a change in behavior. And can we bring some integrity back towards the sales profession? And it comes down to our knowledge of, of where we celebrate. So if you look at the Wolf of Wall Street scenario and almost any glamorized Hollywood production of what selling is, the finish line is the day that somebody closes the deal. The finish line is when you collect the suitcase full of cash. The finish line is when you swipe the credit card. And this is where people get excited about where salespersonship should exist, is, is they celebrate the transaction itself. In my work, I want to shift the result further down the tracks, is the point we should be celebrating is when you over-delivered on the promise that somebody parted with money for. When you over-delivered on the promise. And I use a simple example on this, it is, is if you think about owning a wedding dress shop, And if you are the owner of a wedding dress shop, when do you celebrate the transaction of the sale? And in truth, most wedding dress shops actually celebrate the transaction of the sale when she says yes to the dress and you swipe the credit card and it says cha-ching, right? That isn't the most important day, though, in the consumer's life. That's not what's going to make you remarkable. It's not where you're going to build a reputation. It's not where the magic's going to happen. Where should you celebrate? 
some of the smart people say, well, what about like the wedding day itself? And I would accept that that would be a better day to celebrate, right? If the product performs on that day, that's a better day to be involved in celebrating the value of the transaction that happened. Yeah, there's a better day still if you're smart enough to truly understand it. Because in my mind, through the research we've done, the most important day to the consumer in that transaction isn't when she says yes to the dress, isn't when she tries it on that morning, it's when she sees herself in the dress, in the photographs. That's when she can decide, did I make the right choice? Now, if you were a wedding dress retailer excited about celebrating her loving herself in her pictures after the wedding day, what kind of organization would you build then? It's just a shift in focus. And, I, and I'm just fascinated by companies now that are you know, the sales department and then the customer success department or the sales department and then we've got a retention department, et cetera. When if all you did is shift the finish line out to where the promise mattered, then the sale would run all the way through and everybody would understand they have a part to play in it. It's interesting when you look at SaaS software companies, um, you know, one of the most famous narratives and, and metrics is that 90-day window from when you close a deal. Yeah. And if they aren't a customer 90 days after the deal's closed, they never were a customer. It's like they're rewriting history based upon that, you know, did they, did they find the value from the product? But it, you know, what you're talking about in a nutshell is outcome-based selling and, yep. and moving that magic moment a little further down the road where that becomes a hell of a marketing tactic to say, you know, we're more concerned about this day than we are concerned about the day we put this thing in a bag and it, it leaves. It, you know, it, it's, a, it's a great analogy. And every business should be able to find not just that moment, but that moment and then the plotted sequence of moments that then come after that. And now you're not looking at saying, did they stay for 90 days? It's did they reach that success point? Did they reach that next success point? Did they reach that next success point over that, which aligned to their reason for saying yes in the first place? And my anti-Wolf of Wall Street stuff is, is if in truth you look at the moments that were being celebrated in that, the consumer in every one of those celebrated moments will have lost. And in a marketplace like now, where we have so much transparency over service with the internet, where you know, whether it's Yelp reviews, Google reviews, the consumer has more power in today's market than they ever have done. You sell ice to Eskimos and you think that you're a hero, watch your reviews next week and see how much longer you're in business, right? <laughs> it's just, it doesn't add up anymore. You and I are completely aligned on that. I, can I ask this question though? You started selling at a very young age. You were an entrepreneur at a very young age. When did the integrity thing really jump in? Because if we go back over the, the years we've been doing this podcast and I talk, you, you talked about yeah. old salespeople, old gray salespeople, by the way. Um, I, I remember in the early days of selling media, it wasn't, the, the integrity thing really wasn't something that you talked about from day one. And I realized that if I had a level of integrity, I was able to differentiate myself. Yeah. And, and that was long before we had this thing that you talk about where we can do all the research and everything else. So I'm wondering in your journey, when did you realize that that integrity piece was really a game changer? When you sit across a table from someone and you encourage them, influence them, help support them to make a sizable decision, you then look them in the eye and you then shake their hands on it based on this going in a direction that's important to them. If I couldn't sleep at night knowing that I believed that that was the right thing for them to do at the time, I couldn't do my work. 
I have a simple belief in what I do, and I've been quoted this a number of times over, which is if you're not convinced, you cannot convince. You have to believe with absolute certainty that what you're asking somebody to do is worth the money and some, otherwise you can't expect anybody else to. And the first sale that ever needs to be done is on yourself. Like You have to believe that this is worth it. And I'd found myself in numerous occasions in the past where I've decided to step in new directions where I didn't believe in what I was asked to sell. And I think that's where that integrity test comes in is, is when you get the ability to walk away. And, and I now have that even in my, my speaking profession is, is my agent and my management team know there are a number of industries that regardless of fee, I'm heck no. Like, no, thank you. I do not want to encourage people to buy more cigarettes. No, thank you. And numerous other industries. And, and I think it's knowing where your walk away points are and knowing that not every successful sale is the right thing to do. It's a, the other thing that you said that I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit more from you on, because I think you can teach me something. You were talking about, we've got the sales department and we've got the customer service department. Um, and how is a business successful if those two organizations aren't completely linked? There's a, a friend of mine called Jason Hewlett who talks about the promise. And that's really what we're selling in any given environment is a promise, a promise to do something, a promise to perform in a certain way, a promise to be able to be there one way around or another. And if the promises are misaligned, then you're guaranteed to drop the ball. And what happens if that alignment isn't in place is there's, there's no congruence. And at some point, somebody's going to blame somebody else. Now, all of a sudden, you've lost trust. That's why it's imperative that, 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 that everybody needs to be on the same page. And the page that everybody needs to be on is, is the sales page. I think there are only two departments in every business. There's the sales department and then the sales support department. They're the, the only two departments, right? So manufacturing should be supporting the promise of the sales team. Is customer service should be supporting the promise of the sales team. Now, if every other one of those departments is failing, it might be because the promise the sales team is making is the wrong promise. But finding this alignment of saying, can we just all be what we said we were going to be? All of us. Sounds such a simple, different little thing, but, but it's hard for that to actually be done in, in reality. And people need to trust what's being said at every level, otherwise it falls down. Yet the natural thing that people want to do when something goes wrong is find somebody to blame. And that's what happens in a customer service department quite often. It's like, she shouldn't have said that. Right. That, the salesperson overpromised. <laughs> yeah. And this creates the mistrust in salespeople. And in today's market, I believe a salesperson is more important than has ever existed. Because consumers now have choice, they're confused for your choice, decision-making is hard, and they're looking for people to help navigate those complex decision-making processes. And that sales responsibility is serious. And without integrity, it's usually irresponsible from the organization. I don't know how you do the job without it. I don't know how we did it. And I know I made the mistake back in the day running an ad campaign that I knew wouldn't, have, you know, wouldn't work for the customer, but I had to hit budget. And, you know, I think things have dramatically changed and I'm glad that you gave us some of that insight. I do have a couple of questions. Maybe they're coming out of left field, but I'm sure that you can handle it. 
I was watching a, a number of your keynotes. I was mesmerized, by the way, and that doesn't normally happen to me. I would love to understand how long do you prep for one of those uh, presentations that you give? Because it, it everything was to a T and spot on in the one that I saw. And it was just a random sample. So I've, I'm like, I think that there's a lot of prep that goes into this um, when, when Phil's going to do a speech like that. So I'd love to understand that a little bit more. Wow. It's a big question that probably requires a bigger answer. Um, note, firstly, I've been doing this a long time. So, so the prep and the experience are a little bit merged and meshed together in that you've got reps in something. The prep that mostly goes into all of my work is trying to see the world through the audience's eyes. If I can hit a very special button in the bulk of my work, then I've done my job right. And the button I look to press is what I call the show me that you know me button. So my prep goes into understanding what is happening within the heads of the majority of people in that audience. Here's what most speakers think. They think their job is to deliver their speech. My job is to deliver a meaningful conversation to a thousand people at the exact same time, one-on-one, -on -one, that just happens to be delivered. So if I can understand what's going through the heads of those people, like starts to help me be able to show up to that moment with a little bit more integrity and be a touch more present because I'm not worried about what they're thinking. I have confidence that I understand what they're thinking. The other things that then go into prep is I build a, almost a content, like an ingredients list. So if you'd ever seen me prepping for a speech, I'll have just a number of bubbles on a page with words in them. What I've built through the years is I've built a number of bits. I've never delivered the same speech twice, yet I also have a number of pieces that could all go into the making up of a speech. So it's like Lego only have a certain number of components, but what you can build is is indefinite. So I have all these little pieces together. And then what I'll do is I'll build a cadence of story and content piece, story and content piece, story and content piece, and then link it together. Now for that content piece, I might have three to five headers or footers of what could come in, depending upon what time constraints I have, depending upon what audience I'm at. And I'm building from a pantry, like a chef would build a dish out of all of these little tried and tested pieces. Now, I'll do that with 80% of a speech. Now, to keep it fun for me, I'm going to plan in 20% of fun new stuff. Now I can be experimental. Now I can push something a little further. Now it gets me back on edge, right? I'm not complacent. I'm on edge just to say, well, hang on, how might that work? But I've got 80% that I know I can trust, which means I can play with 20. And in that, I find another thing. Like, that was a winner. I'm doing that again. And then you learn, like, how do I get playful with props? How do I maybe turn the volume up at a point? Now, the other big thing that goes into prep is the room is a prop. If you've seen any of my work, particularly in a live environment, is I use every inch of the stage, often giant parts of the floor, and that requires planning because you can't jump off a stage without knowing how you're going to get back on. And you don't want to be found in the wrong spot making the wrong point. So if I'm doing a 9 a.m. keynote, I'm flying into that venue night before, and when everybody else has gone to bed or they're in the bar, I'm walking the floor. Doing the prep. And I'm planning, and I'm blocking and staging, and I'm considering where I'm going to come. Now, the other thing I do is I control all of the controllables. 
So I have a backup for the backup for the backup, i.e. if the mic fails, I'm good. If the AV fails, I'm good. If my slides go down, I'm good. So I can be fully present in the moment without fear of anything. I even prep, how am I going to get introduced? Are we shaking hands? Are we high-fiving? Are we fist bumping? Are we hugging? Right? Is which way are you exiting the stage? When I'm done, who do I hand back to? What happens next? Like all of those little things. And what it then allows me to be able to do is to be fully present in the moment. And I think that level of immersion means that you can show up completely in state, knowing that you're there to serve the moment. And I take that very, very seriously. Like if you've got a thousand people in an audience and you're on stage for an hour, that is a thousand hours of productivity you're responsible for. It's a big investment that's being made. So now I've got this question and I'm glad that you gave us that level of detail. Is it any different than preparing for that thousand dollar a month presentation? Is it any different, you know, the level of detail that you put into it and the way that you have that whole thing crafted and it could go one of two or three ways, but you know where it could go. Yeah. Isn't that the same prep that every sales rep should put into every presentation that they give in front of a customer? That's what I call the work before the work. Everybody wants to say, how do you get good at the work? If you do the work before the work, then the work is easy. And that would be showing up for a sales appointment. That would be delivering a speech. That would be running a demonstration. That would be making a regular account call. That would be thinking about, I've got to deal with a customer complaint. And I did a lot of this work through consulting at the start of the pandemic of creating what I would call scenario plays with clients. And they thought it was revolutionary. I'm like, well, they're scared about what could happen. I'm saying, well, why don't we look at all the things that could happen and then work out all our what ifs so that when that happens, you're not like, oh, dang, you're like, oh, well, we're going to do this then. Like, wow, that's amazing. Like, there is so much more that we can control if you're brave enough to play all your scenarios out ahead of time and then you're prepared. Because quite often all you need is a split second or a beat to make a choice. Whereas if you procrastinate, the moment has passed. So if you do the thinking ahead of time, in the moment, you can, you can be on form. And I, and I think so few salespeople really do the work. And in today's environment, George, where we're at arm's length and you can't smooth over cracks by buying somebody a scotch or, you know, taking them for a round of golf or, or jumping on a plane and, you know, and taking them to a show where your time is precious, the work before the work is more important than it ever has been. And you've got to be worth it in the time. I find it fascinating that people show up for meetings and and we see this in the podcast world, right? You are an example of doing the work before the work with how much you understand about me as a, as a guest before getting into what is our first real conversation. You want to understand how many podcast guests invite me on a show and, and, and they've done next to no research. And you're like, wow, that doesn't sound that responsible to your audience that you have requested a guest that you want to plug their expertise on their behalf and you haven't considered what you might be able to extract from them ahead of time. You're just going to wing it. We see this with salespeople. We see it with entrepreneurs. We see it everywhere where people think they need to be brilliant in the moment. You need to be brilliant before the moment and then the moment can be brilliant. Well, Phil, I'm sure that you and I could continue this conversation for hours um, Mm -hmm. and unpack all of that knowledge. But what I'd love to do is to have you leave our listeners with a few uh, nuggets as to where they could get more information on you and your organization. And then if there is some listener out there that's looking to book a great keynote speaker, I know a guy, his name's Phil, and, and I've, you know, I watched a number of those keynotes and I'll continue to 
follow your content because you know it's uh, it's very very good information. So if you could leave your information here, well, of course, put it in the notes. But love to hear it from you first. Yeah, you bet. I mean, if people have enjoyed this conversation, we can continue it offline. So come find me on social media, on LinkedIn, on Instagram. We can continue the conversation. I'm at Phil M. Jones UK there. If you want to learn more about me, my body of work, hit Google and then put Phil space M space Jones. You'll stumble across a load of things. Website is philmjones.com. And if you're new to my work and you want to understand in particular, how you can be more persuasive and how you can be more influential on all the critical conversations that show up in your life, then grab a copy of exactly what to say. Read it. If you don't find it useful, don't think it was worth your $10 and your hour of read, then send it to me or tell me about it online. I'll buy you any other book that you want in its place. Phil M. Jones, CEO and founder at Phil M. Jones International. Thanks for your valuable time today. And uh, we appreciate having you as one of our now Conqueror alumni on the Conquer Local podcast. Thank you, George. Thank you, rest of your team. Pleasure to be here. Well, Phil shares his time between St. Petersburg, Florida, and London, England, working with companies all over this globe and helping. You can tell that he's very passionate about bringing integrity to the sales process. And uh, I I just want to touch on a couple of the takeaways. We talked about how do I not be the sleazy salesperson? Because people have this connotation of sleazy salespeople. And we've talked a lot about it on this show. It's around delivering on the promise. Um, in fact, the way that Phil presents it is, did I over deliver on my promise? And, um, you know, it's a cliche under promise over deliver, but really that's what the customer is looking for. After you have made that sale, you've made some statements, you've said that it's going to do X. What if it was to do X, Y, and Z? And then with that level of trust you've built and the fact that you delivered on your promise, you can now start to really grow your relationship with that customer. Um, Phil talked a lot about, and I'm glad that we were able to get to it because when I was prepping for the episode, I noticed that he's just a phenomenal presenter. And usually that isn't just something that you wing it. You have to have a lot of preparation. And he went into painstaking detail about the level of preparation that he does. And I, and I let him run with it because I, I want all of us to understand that, you know, first off, he's been doing it for a long time. So he called that out, but he spends a lot of time trying to understand the audience. Who is in the audience? What am I going to be able to pull out of my repertoire to relate to that audience? And he has a general idea of where he's going to go with a little bit of room for an ad lib or something that he could do on the fly that would really resonate with the group that's in that room. So then it's not just, oh, here's Phil with can presentation three that I've saw 15 different times. He always gives a little bit of room to make it unique. So the same thing, when we go into a presentation with a customer, we have a very clearly defined path that we're going to go on. The talk track that we're using has been delivered a number of times. We know that it resonates with a certain audience. We have analyzed the potential audience that we're presenting to, and we know that this content will resonate with that group. And then even using the room as a prop. And we've talked about that on this podcast. When we're doing virtual presentations, There's, you know, all the jokes and the memes and everything else about how you don't have to wear underwear or you don't, you know, but you still are making a professional presentation. So what's behind you? 
on the screen? Should we blur that thing or will the cat running across the screen be okay? Like we've got to be thinking about the environment that we're in making the presentation as much as what we are presenting. Use it all. It is all a part of that message that you're trying to deliver. Phil's a pro. And you can learn a lot from him. I'm looking forward to learning more as I dig into the content that he has online. And we have links to a lot of that content here in the show notes to make it easy for you to get some more Phil M. Jones or just Google him and you can see the YouTube videos and the various keynotes. Um, We really appreciate him making some time in his very busy schedule to share with our audience here at the Conquer Local podcast. We're looking at building late 2021 episodes. So we'd love to get some feedback or some suggestions from you, or maybe you've saw a great keynote and you're like, whoa, George and Colleen should get that person on the podcast. Share all that information. We love hearing from our listeners and look forward to seeing you again when we continue to conquer local. My name is George Leith. I'll see you when I see you. You've been listening to the Conquer Local podcast presented by Vendasta. Guest discovery and scheduling by Jacob Soley and Carissa Clausen. Marketing by Rory Lawford, Aaron Shawaga, Nicole Lozon, and Trent Walker. Produced by Colleen McGrath. Executive producers Brendan King and George Leith. Recorded and mixed at Sound Lounge by T-Bone.